You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Many liberals are calling for the Democrats to impose term limits or expand the size of the Supreme Court and pack it with liberal justices to counter the 6-3 to three conservative majority that's ahead. But those aren't the only reforms under consideration. Some are arguing for structural changes that would strip away power from the judiciary. Joining me is Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale University. Explain what jurisdiction stripping is. Jurisdiction stripping refers to a congressional attempt to remove certain kinds of cases from the federal courts. The Constitution is actually pretty extraordinary in Article 3 and giving lots of power to the legislative branch to tell the judiciary what it can do. Actually, Article 3 says there has to be a Supreme Court, but the fact that there are lower courts at all is entirely up to Congress. And Article 3 also gives a lot of authority to the legislature to decide what cases go where and what kinds of cases the federal courts can hear. So the idea of jurisdiction stripping, which really goes back into the early 20th century and progressives have advocated it and conservatives at different points in the last century is to say that something that Congress wants should be treated as off limits for the federal courts to mess with. And um, for progressive like me, it, it seems like a tool that um, if Joe Biden wins uh, and the Senate changes hands, um, could be used to protect any of the next Congress's most important legislation like H.R. 1 or even a Green New Deal if the Democrats uh, get around to it. So was it in the 80s that the conservatives tried some legislation involving jurisdiction stripping and there was a memo written by John Roberts at the Department of Justice about this? Did any of that work? Were they ever able to pull it off? You know, that's 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 absolutely right, that when he was a young lawyer, Chief Justice John Roberts, now Chief Justice, read the Constitution and surveyed the history and and ad- advised that jurisdiction stripping is fair game. Now, it's only, you know, only honest to note that jurisdiction stripping has rarely happened in American history. Um, it has to be take the form of a statute or be attached to other statutes. Uh, about other things that pass both houses of Congress and either get signed by the president or survive his veto. And those are conditions that don't favor jurisdiction stripping as a tool. Um, But while the Republicans have been the ones who've tried it with, you know, things like flag burning um, in recent decades, um, there have been successful instances of jurisdiction stripping, most notably in the immigration area, where it's been very difficult for defenders of immigrants' rights to get a hearing in federal courts because of jurisdiction stripping by Congress. And on a bipartisan basis, actually, after September 11, 2001, there was a lot of work across the aisle to deprive accused terrorists of their rights in federal courts, also through jurisdiction stripping. So it's possible. It's difficult, for sure. So explain how it works. You pass a statute and you attach this provision onto it? 
That's right. Um, that would be the most obvious way. Now, the courts exist also in virtue of statutes, except the Supreme Court. But even the Supreme Court's jurisdiction depends on uh, a kind of general jurisdiction granting statute. And so it's always possible for Congress to pass another general statute that defines the kind of boundaries of the jurisdiction of the various federal courts. But much more plausible to me, at least, um, is that if there's a law that the Congress particularly cares about, it can use jurisdiction stripping techniques in that statute to protect it from the judiciary taking pot shots at it. If you go back, you remember the Affordable Care Act was initially seen to be unquestionably within Congress's power under the Constitution, and it wasn't thinkable when the Affordable Care Act passed that the judiciary would take it apart, but then that's what happened. And so now if there's further health care reform or an important environmental uh, law statute, you, you might think that it would only make sense for a Congress to back up its law with an attempt to guard it, especially since now there's there going to be six conservative votes on the Supreme Court and a, a thoroughly Trumpified judiciary because of um, Donald Trump and Donald McGon's very successful agenda of getting conservative judges throughout the federal judiciary. And remember, a case only comes to the Supreme Court in general once it's made it through the lower courts. Um, so given that situation where you could expect that Democrats will control the political branches, the presidency and the Congress, and a big conservative right-wing legacy uh, within the stronghold of the judiciary, it just makes sense to think that any self-respecting Congress will want to think about protecting its laws against um, their, you know, invalidation or revision, you know, what happened to Obamacare. So explain how this would work. Congress would pass a law and there would be a provision in it saying something like, this is not subject to review by the courts? Essentially, um, you know, there are various ways of doing it. I mean, what would happen is that that litigants who don't like the statute could still bring the question to the courts of whether the jurisdiction stripping part of the statute is valid, um, not just the larger law or the provisions of the larger law. And it's not as if, you know, there's anything to be, you know, to be done to keep the, the judiciary from considering jurisdiction stripping illegal or beyond Congress's power, especially if there are constitutional claims in play. But it makes it harder. Um, you know, there's not going to be, you know, a fail safe, um, but it, a jurisdiction stripping um, aspect to a statute provides more protection than um, it provides another hurdle that litigants and um, a, a friendly judiciary would have to kind of leap over to, to if their goal is to invalidate federal law. So because you'd imagine that if this kind of a law comes before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will likely say that that's not constitutional? You know, the, the fact is that there's a big academic debate about, um, about this very topic, but we have limited um, actual Supreme Court jurisprudence on this subject, in part because, as I mentioned, it's pretty rare that the Congress has been able to organize itself to engage in control of, 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 of 
jurisdiction, especially to protect statutes. Um, so we, we don't know what would happen. We know what the arguments would look like. The dominant opinion in the legal academy for a long time has been that Congress has m much more power to engage in um, jurisdiction stripping than it has exploited so far. And um, you, you may think that the Supreme Court would would protect its its power, but you never know. I mean, I think it would depend on the law in question, what it was trying to do, and what constitutional infirmities, um, you know, litigants claimed they needed the, the judiciary to protect. I should also note there is a World War II era case in which the Congress set up a jurisdiction channeling mechanism where it said, um, we don't want to strip uh, th this statute and make it immune to all challenges. So what we'll do is we'll set up a special court within the executive branch um, and then say the judicial branch can't review um, the questions about the statute. And in a, a Supreme Court case in 1942, um, the Supreme Court actually said that's okay. So Stripping could go along with what's called jurisdiction channeling, where you kind of redirect litigation around a statute somewhere else than the federal judiciary. But you're ultimately you're right. Any any kind of confrontation with the power of the courts will be a confrontation. It will be political to its core, and there'll be a lot of legal claims. But you know, there, there's no alternative unless we just want to see the judiciary as a place where progressive legislation goes to die. You agree then when conservatives argue that uh, any of these moves, the jurisdiction stripping, the court packing, the term limits, would politicize the court? Well, I already think it's thoroughly politicized. So, um, you know, the question is whether it's to good or bad ends. And it's certainly true that conservatives will make all the claims they have available and progressives will reply. And, you know, that, then it, it sort of depends both on Congress, what, what risks it wants to take, how far out on a limb it wants to go, and on the judiciary. Because if it makes a controversial decision, as we're going to see very soon, if, if the Affordable Care Act ends up totally invalidated, there's going to be rage in the country. Um, you know, if if Congress um, actually can garner support for progressive legislation and protects its legislation through jurisdiction stripping, and the Supreme Court says, never mind, we're going to strike it down anyway, it, it will anticipate some pushback. So maybe the jurisdiction stripping will make it a little less invasive over time. And that's a that's that's an outcome that progressives may have to live with. It's better than the alternatives, which is, you know, the death of some of the of of the provisions they're trying to, you know, pass through the political branches. There's been a lot more attention. In fact it's become, you know, a topic in the debates of packing the court, expanding the court. Correct. What's your view on expanding the court? Well, it seems like that's going to be the the court reform that gets the lion's share of attention and maybe priority, especially if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed. So it seems a certainty. Um, but even if if the Democrats pack the court, so-called, or expand the personnel by a couple of justices to undo the damage of Mitch McConnell as they see it, the court will be back um, in 
the status quo ante Neil Gorsuch, which for many people is an intolerable baseline. Um, even before um, Donald Trump you know, became president and got three appoint- appointments, the Supreme Court was the most business-friendly body um, in a century. Uh, and if progressives really do want to push through you know, um, legislation around the environment or, or health care or economic inequality. Um, the, the Supreme Court is a dangerous place, even if it's packed with a couple of new justices. In More generally, you know, justices, even ones who are added in the short term, will stay for a while and be replaced through normal political processes. For, so for the long term, it seems to me we should care about the question of, of how powerful we leave the Supreme Court, not just obsessed by who serves on it in the short term. Thank you for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Samuel Moyne. He's a professor of history and law at Yale University. After four days of hearings on the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he has the votes to win Senate confirmation and expects to bring the nomination to the floor on October 23rd. The 48-year-old Barrett has been a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals for three years after being a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Barrett's mentor was the conservative icon, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, and she follows his judicial philosophy of originalism. But she said that mentors and protégés disagree. If I'm confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia. You would be getting Justice Barrett. In 20 hours of questioning, Barrett declined to answer questions on issues from abortion rights to voting rights to Obamacare and any other issue that might come before the Supreme Court. I've repeatedly said, as has every other nominee who sat in this seat, that we can't answer questions in the abstract. That would have to be decided in the course of the judicial process. My guest is Josh Blackman, a constitutional law professor at the South Texas College of Law. Josh, what did we learn from the hearings? June, most of the question was pretty vapid. It was pretty empty. There wasn't much substance there. Um, the senators are reading carefully scripted questions, and Judge Barrett's smart enough to not answer anything disqualifying. So there was very little, like, wow, what an enlightening exchange. It was mostly just people making speech for their constituencies. Broadly, there are assertions that her vote could change the law in areas like abortion rights, Obamacare, LGBTQ rights, gun rights, voting rights. Broadly, where do you think her vote on the court will change the law? In what areas? You know, I think judges aren't always that predictable. Um, It seems on a consistent basis that Republican presidents appoint judges, and those judges vote in unexpected ways in cases involving gay rights, in cases involving um, abortion, in cases involving LGBT rights, in cases involving Obamacare. So I wouldn't pretend to know how she'll vote. Um, But I think we can all be candid to say that she's going to be more conservative than Justice Ginsburg. I think we all agree on that. And there might be some cases involving abortion or federal power or free speech where I think Justice Barrett may come out differently than Justice Ginsburg. Without question, she pushes the court to the right. In what's become typical for Supreme Court nominees, she refused to answer questions on a host of issues. Some she's even expressed personal opinions on in the past, such as abortion rights. And Democrats pressed her to comment on some very basic legal principles. For example, 
if the president has the authority to deny a person the right to vote based on their race. And even in those areas, she refused to plainly say no. What does that tell you? You know, there's just old standing rule that doesn't make a lot of sense. Judges can't answer questions when they're on these hearings. And the reason why they can't answer is sort of a technical reason. When you go to a court and you want to have a fair hearing, you expect a judge to be neutral. But if a judge has already answered how they think of a question should be ruled, then they're not neutral. So to avoid creating conflicts of interest, judges won't tell you what they think. Um, but the reason why you want to appoint a judge is because of what they think. So it's this weird chicken and egg dance. It, 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 it's a bizarre dance. That's how it works. Lindsey Graham opened one day by saying, you know, she's a, a conservative woman, pro-life woman, going to the Supreme Court and lauded that. And you have the president and his list that was called by the Federalist Society. So isn't it sort of obvious almost ha- that she will be very conservative? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's why she was picked. Uh, and I think the president gets to make that call because he's in office. And he has a vote. He's, he's getting his judge confirmed. Um, if the Democrats had the Senate, there's no way she would be confirmed. I think we're getting to a place where unless the president and the Senate have the same party, they're both Democrats and both Republican, you don't confirm a nominee. Um, the only reason Judge Barrett will get through is because you have Republican Senate, at least for now, and a Republican presidency. Ideology is becoming a huge factor because the court is such a central role in our society. And I think that that it's unfortunate, but that's the pattern where we're headed. At what point in Supreme Court nominations did ideology become important? I think the process started getting really ugly uh, during the Robert Bork hearing in 1987 to 88. That's when things really start going downhill. And then during the Clarence Thomas hearing a few years later. Um, then there was a bit of a lull where the Ginsburg hearing was was normal, the Sotomayor here, I'm sorry, the, the Breyer hearing was normal. Uh, but then when Roberts came up, people tried to block him. And there was actually a filibuster planned for Alito. It didn't quite work. Um, Sotomayor went through smooth, Kagan went through smooth. But then with Gorsuch, there was all this hostility because of the Garland affair. So, you know, it seems that the Democratic justice seems to pass through pretty well. And Republican justice seems to have all these increasing hostility. Um, but I think, you know, when... If, President, if there's a President Biden, we'll see the same hostility from the right. Uh, but it doesn't matter anymore. If you have the votes, you have the votes. It's just, it's, it's just you put your person through. The Democrats on the committee focused a great deal on Obamacare. The Supreme Court is going to hear a challenge to that law on November 10th. And Judge Barrett seemed to try to distance herself from her past criticism of Chief Justice John Roberts' reasoning in the 2012 opinion that upheld the core of the ACA. Did she succeed? You know, I think this is a place where Judge Barrett, she wrote something that isn't ideal for her, where she wrote that the Chief Justice's opinion was perhaps not the best reading of the statute. Now, I think that that's a fair characterization of what Robert said, although I do think Barrett went just a little bit further. But even so, the fact that a, that a professor criticizes a case doesn't disqualify them as a judge. I still think she can be fair and neutral on this issue. I, I really think that you know, June, I've written two books on Obamacare, a third coming out. The court's not going to strike down Obamacare. It's just not going to happen. This myth that people keep saying they want it to be true, it's not going to happen. Then why do Republicans keep suing over Obamacare if it's not going to happen? This will be the third time it goes up to the Supreme Court. 
you know, it's like the story of the dog that keeps chasing the car and gets <laughs> doesn't know what to do. I don't know why. It's just this fixation on repealing Obamacare that's just never passed. And I've been following this now for nearly a decade. I don't fully understand it. But the timing is not good for Judge Barrett. I'll admit that much. So let's discuss this uh, super precedent, the theory of super precedents. Is there a general legally accepted principle of what constitutes a super precedent that should not be reversed by the court? This concept of super precedent sounds really important, but it's not a real thing. It's sort of just made up. Um, you know, the Supreme Court's never used this phrase. Um, you know, all precedent um, is important, uh, but the court's also willing to reverse precedent when it has the votes. Um, I don't expect, though, that Judge Barrett will vote to radically alter society. We've had a very long history in this country where precedents that even might seem wrong uh, sort of stay um, on the books. What the court does instead is they don't reverse the precedent. They simply modify it and they scale it back and they reduce it. That's been the, that's been the pattern. You sort of modify precedent, but you leave it in name. And I think that's what's more likely to happen with some of the issues. Some of the issues you mentioned like abortion or, 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 or religious freedom. The Supreme Court nominees in recent history have been willing to say that Roe v. Wade was precedent. And Justice Kavanaugh said it was precedent on precedent. Judge Barrett, she was willing to say a few cases were correctly decided. Brown v. Board, which struck down school segregation. Loving v. Virginia, which invalidated prohibitions against interracial marriage. But she hedged on Griswold v. Connecticut, the court's decision striking down a ban on contraceptive sales to married couples. And she refused to say that Roe v. Wade was a super precedent. What do we take from that? I think Judge Barrett's being more candid than were Judges Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Um, I think Judges Kavanaugh and Gorsuch said what they said they had to say to get confirmed. I don't get that impression from Judge Barrett. I think Judge Barrett's being actually quite candid. Um, there are some precedents that simply are not being challenged anymore. People don't disagree with them. Um, Brown, uh, Board of Education is one of them. Uh, people vigorously disagree with the basis of a right to abortion. And the basis of a right to contraception leads to the right to abortion. So if you disagree with the abortion precedent, you very likely may disagree with the, the contraceptive precedent. Now, it's sort of a myth. There's no state in the union that's trying to ban contraception. That's what Barrett said. It's just, it, it, it's not going to happen. That's not a thing. Um, no state's trying it. So it's sort of a, of a moot issue. But once you concede that the contraception case is a right, that lays a groundwork for saying that the abortion case is a right. And I think she prudently says, I can't go down either road. And looking at her track record on the Seventh Circuit as far as uh, abortion, um, she upheld a protest buffer zone around abortion clinics, and she wanted the full court to weigh in on an Indiana law that required that funerals be held for fetal remains. And she also wanted to have a full court hearing on an Indiana law that would have made it harder for a minor to have an abortion without her parents being notified. So does her track record at the Seventh Circuit tell us where she stands in any event? Well, I think when you're a lower court judge, you're in a different position. When you're a lower court judge, you're you're bound by what the Supreme Court says. And I think what her defense actually said was that the Supreme Court might want to take a look at this, right? I don't think that um, uh, her, the, the dissent she joined was actually quite as broad as the media is in characterizing it. Um, but, you know, she's now in a new seat. She's not bound by the Supreme Court. She's not bound as a lower court judge. I think she could flex her wings a bit more. So I think without question, she'll be closer to Justice Thomas and Alito on abortion 
um, than she would be to, you know, say Justice Kennedy or even Chief Justice Roberts. She's embraced the judicial philosophy of her mentor, Justice Antonin Scalia, originalism and textualism. Explain what that means. Originalism is a very simple idea. Um, if you or I write something and we want to know what it means, we would look at sources to say, what are those words meaning the year 2020? But over time, the meaning of language can drift and change. Um, so if you read a text from the 1790s, um, we may not use the same language today as we used back then. Um, originally, to figure out uh, what is the meaning of the word in the Constitution as it would have been understood in the 1790s. Um, and this is a philosophy that, you know, was once considered fringe um, and is now becoming quite mainstream. I think Justice Scalia went to, did a lot of work to make it mainstream. And now it was forced law clerk, Judge Barrett, will be on the court as another proud originalist. And, and textualist? Textualism is very similar to originalism. Uh, the difference is you're interpreting a statute, right? Not a constitution that's 200 years old, but an act of Congress. And it's the same principles. You're trying to figure out what the Congress means. Not necessarily what individual people intended, but what was the meaning of the words they chose. Justice Scalia thought Roe was wrongly decided, and he voted against gay marriage, Obamacare, and the Voting Rights Act. She said, you're not going to get Justice Scalia, you'll get Justice Barrett. If you're an originalist and a textualist, would you come to the same conclusion as Justice Scalia did? On those issues? Originalists don't always agree with each other. In fact, they often disagree. Very often, Justices Thomas and Justice Scalia were on different sides of a case. Um, so I think it's a myth that originalism has only one set of answers. I think it does lead to many different, uh, uh, many different positions. I don't know where Judge Barrett will fall. Um, my guess is she'll be closer to Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, but she could fall anywhere on the court. I'm not sure. She was asked about her dissent in a 2019 gun rights case where she argued that a conviction for a nonviolent felony shouldn't automatically disqualify someone from owning a gun. Is that contradictory to what Justice Scalia wrote in Heller? Well, Heller was a decision from 2008 that held that the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. Um, Heller didn't try to answer all the separate questions. Um, Heller said that certain long-standing prohibitions on, on criminals uh, uh, might be valid, um, but there has not been a long-standing prohibition on nonviolent felons. That's a fairly novel and recent innovation. And what Judge Barrett wrote is that someone who engaged in what you would call a white-collar offense, right, that was not an act of violence, should not forever forfeit their gun rights. The, the classic example is Martha Stewart, right? Why can't Martha Stewart own a gun? Now, maybe she doesn't want to. I don't know. Uh, but, but her crime was, was, was not violent. It, it was white collar. Um, in this case, the defendant had engaged in somebody Medicare fraud or Medicaid fraud, which was a bad act, but he did it long ago. He served his time. He's repented. Um, why can't he have a restoration of his civil rights? She seemed to talk about a difference between that and voting rights. Why shouldn't a felon then, if that reasoning holds, then why shouldn't a felon also a nonviolent felon, if you want, be able to vote? Well, this is a quirk of the 14th Amendment. Um, the 14th Amendment specifically recognizes that the right to vote can be taken away from felons, right? The, the framers of the 14th Amendment put that in there, uh, thinking that if you, um, uh, if you commit a crime, you can lose the political right of voting. 
the right to bear arms is different. It's a civil right. Um, and the Second Amendment doesn't suggest that it can be violated, uh, deprived from, from, from nonviolent felons. So I think uh, uh, Justice Barrett was making an observation of how the framers put different language in the Second and the Fourteenth Amendment. Looking forward, what do you see ahead for the Supreme Court? You know, I think the, the elephant in the room is what happens if Biden wins. Uh, we've had nine justices for a long time. Do we go to uh, 11? Do we go to 13? Is there court packing, actual court packing? And I think that's, that's very likely in our, in our future. Uh, you know, if you open up your fortune cookie, you shake your magic eight ball. Uh, the court packing is in the cards. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Josh. That's Josh Blackman, a professor of constitutional law at the South Texas College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.